Welcome back to KSCJ Radio, 1360 AM, 94.9 FM in Sioux City, Iowa. I'm Brian Vikulskis, and this is Having Read That, conversations with authors about their books. My guest is Grady Hendricks. He is a New York Times bestselling author, and he is the writer of the brand new novel, The Final Girl Support Group. It is available everywhere. And Grady, this term, Final Girl, is a uh, it's a trope in horror movies. What, what does it mean in, in, in the terms of that trope and in the terms of your title? So final girls are the woman, it's usually the woman who survives the end of a horror movie, right? The one who reaches the end credits. Uh, usually she has to kill the killer along the way. Very occasionally it's a man. I think Nightmare on Elm Street 2 had a guy who's the final girl, a final guy. But, um, and so in my book, though, I always thought that, like, well, if these final girls survive this, aren't they going to need a little therapy? Um, those are, it's pretty traumatic to watch all your friends killed by a guy in a hockey mask at a summer camp. And so I sort of posited to the book that there's a support group of final girls. Um, you can see that in the title. And they've been meeting for a really long time and have sort of started wondering, like, why they're still obsessed with something that happened when they were teenagers. And maybe it's time to move on. And that is the cue for them to start dying one by one. Well, you know, I, I didn't realize it until I read this novel, but the whole idea of the final girl, we watch these horror films, we watch them, we love them and, and that, but, I mean, th- this is trauma that women go through, and so if you pull it out of the fiction category and think about it in terms of your own life, these are some messed up people, and they do need therapy. So what is it that makes it so attractive to us where, we, where we're almost, in the fact, taking the humanity out of them? You know, that's a really good question. It's kind of the question that motivated the book. I, I turned around and I thought, I've, I've been watching horror movies for 40 years, which means I've been watching people get murdered for fun for a very long time, and that does not sound healthy. Um, and like you said, it's very easy to sort of dehumanize the people in the movies. And I sort of wanted to restore some humanity to them. But also what I realized in writing the book is, the movies that I think people return to the most, the ones that really stick with us as a culture, the horror movies and flashers that we keep telling and retelling over and over again, are the ones where someone survives. And I think the thing about a final girl is she's not necessarily the fastest or the strongest or the bravest or the smartest. She just doesn't give up. And I think there's something enormously comforting in that to us, that you know, the way to survive is just, not to quit. It sounds reductive, but sometimes that's what you need to hear. Well, the protagonist of the book, Lynette Tarkington, which is a great name for a character, by the way, but uh, what, oh, what, uh, what trauma had she gone through this massacre? Because I thought this was an interesting one. Yeah, well, so that's, you know, there was a whole raft of Santa Claus killer, like, slasher movies in the 80s. And so Lynette is a survivor of one of those where uh, a guy, you know, the typical one was someone breaks out of a mental hospital and they dress as Santa and they take an axe and they go kill everyone they find on Christmas Eve. Um, it's sort of like the Michael Myers Halloween night thing just put on Christmas. Um, and so Lynette plays a, a, is, is kind of a final girl, but she's one who is basically the Santa killer breaks in her house and hangs her on a rack of antlers. Um, which is enormously horrible and painful. And she survives only for, um, after he's caught his brother to break out and come seeking revenge, which is always the thing that struck me about these movies is there's always a sequel. And so even if the final girl survives one, she often dies a few movies later. It's like the one faceless, ma- a faceless, nameless killer we can't stop is, you know, the forces of market capitalism, I guess. 
You know, you're a writer, and so you can obviously critique writing. Looking at these horror films, I've seen horror films over the years where I thought they were great, and I've seen horror films where they had all the quality of writing of a high-grade porno movie. And so where do you you judge the the writing for these horror films? Because there's some good and some pretty bad. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting. Like, there's some movies that that are, like you said, legit good movies. I mean, and I would say, you know, Friday the 13th Part 2 is a legit good movie. Um, Black Christmas is a legitimately good movie. Um, But then there are ones that are bad but fun bad. I mean, um... I was just uh, re-watching uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which is bad but fun, and, and a lot of people would argue with me and say it's actually good. And then there's movies that are just bad, just plain old awful. I don't want to name any names, but I'm looking at you, Doom Asylum. Um, and so really, like, if you love horror, I think it's the same way as if you love romance novels or if you love westerns or if you love crime fiction or mysteries. You read and watch a lot, and you take the good with the bad, and you can find some pleasure even in the badness of the bad one sometimes. Um, The biggest sin I think something can commit, if you love it and you love that kind of book or kind of movie, is being boring. I think everyone would rather read a bad horror novel than a boring one. Well, and, you know, you talk about the therapy that a lot of the final girls will need, but the coping mechanisms, some in this book have great coping mechanisms, others do not. And so they need a particular set of those skills just going into the film in order to survive it. So how do you decide who has the best coping mechanisms and then how do you how do you have them really externalize that to the others for this support? Yeah, well, you know, it's funny. I really, like, Lynette was easy, because Lynette's just terrified of everything, like I would be. Um, She's the one I identify with the most. If someone, you know, dressed as Santa Claus, broke in my house, and tried to kill me twice, I would basically buy the most powerful locks I could find and put six of them on every single one of my doors and stop going outside. So she was great to write. She was easy, because it's also, like, it's really enjoyable to write a character whose point of view is just, that wrong, you know, that that everything is dangerous, everything's going to kill you, why leave the house? Um, And then I just sort of extrapolated with the others, you know, we all all sort of know is that cultural campfire tale, the the Freddy Krueger, the guy who came and killed teenagers in their dreams, and I thought, if that happened, like if someone came into my dreams, I'd be self-medicating for the rest of my life, you know, so I, and that's Heather, you know, she's, She's basically drinking and popping everything she can get her hands on because that's how bad it was for her. And then you know that some people would go into denial. Some people would get super stoic. Some people would turn into an Oprah kind of figure and use what had happened to them to try to help other people. And I just tried to sort of think through what all the possible reactions could be and then gave each one to one of my final girls. I'm chatting with Grady Hendricks about his brand new novel, The Final Girls Support Group. It's available everywhere. Grady, when you write horror scenes, and you know we're used to seeing this in a visual medium, in a theater, in a dark theater, in our living rooms, on a couch or whatever, but when you write horror, there is a particular way to do this in order to keep the suspense up when you're not actually viewing it, when you don't hear the music in the background. So what do you use as your tools to write horror to make it have that much suspense to it? Oh, yeah. Well, it's really, it's actually really, really fun because once you sort of do a rough draft of the book, like I really try to power through and just get it on paper. Um, that's often unpleasantly called the vomit draft. 
it's really, really fun to go through and adjust and get things working. And I have a lot of people I know who read stuff, and I can tweak it. Because the thing with, with something being scary is it's like something being funny. A joke either works or it doesn't. There's not a joke that almost works. You don't get 80% funny. And it's the same with horror. It's either scary or it's not. It either works or it doesn't. You don't do 80%, you know? And so it's really fun to try to adjust that. And one of the things I find, you know, one is the joke structure is really useful setup and payoff. I mean, that's the classic joke structure. But one of the things I find really useful to keep in mind is magic. Um, you know, performing magic is all about directing the audience's attention. You know, look over here, but not over here. Look at what my left hand's doing so you don't see what my right hand's doing. Bringing something back around to pick it up later. And um, I find that really, really useful in writing hard because writing's all about the only thing writing is is directing the reader's attention. Pay attention to this. Don't pay attention to that. You know, and then you use some joke structure, right? Like, remember that thing I said an hour ago? Now I'm going to drop it in again, and you get that satisfaction of a reader is remembering it. So it's all these little techniques you sort of cobble together in other places. Um, and, and the whole goal is just to direct the reader's attention the way you want them to. As you write horror and you set these in different settings. I mean, the setting is usually what drives the story. I mean, there's only so many ways to have somebody chasing you, but depending on where it happens, whether it's in a, uh, you know, a daycare facility or a church or whatever like that, are there any off-limits places where you would not want to see a horror set? Not really. I mean, you know, I think we, we I mean, we live with that every day right now, you know, I mean, a lot of people think of slashers as these very cute kind of relics of the 80s, these sort of warm, fuzzy, nostalgia nuggets, you know. Oh, it's the, the summer camp, you know, killer movie and all that. But the slasher template is our modern, real-life American horror template. I mean, it is a man with a weapon in a supposedly safe place, like a school or a dormitory, moving through it and methodically killing everyone he finds. And that's something we live with. And so I feel like there's nothing really off-limits because as normal, everyday human beings, we've already gone over that line in our, our daily lives. You know, you came onto my radar years ago when you had your book come out about the paperback boom of the 70s and 80s. I think it was Paperbacks from Hell. Uh, that was a few, yeah, a, few, yeah. a few years back. And I've thought about that over the years as I see these books come out. And there are ebbs and flows to paperbacks, but we, we saw that boom. What do you account for that in the 80s? Why haven't we seen it since then? Well, you know, I mean, part of it was, was institutional, right? Like, publishing was very different in the 80s. The paperback market was very, very strong. Um, and, you know, you had, these days, a book that sells very well might sell 30,000, 40,000 copies. A book that sold very well, they had, that, was a, that was a rounding error in the 80s. In the 80s, you had books that were considered okay, doing 200,000 copies, you know, 250,000 copies. Um, so it was just a different time where, where there was a, just more people reading and more room for paperbacks on the market. So that was one part of it. Um, the other part of it was horror hadn't really existed before 1967 when Rosemary's Baby came out. And so that came out was a big hit, and suddenly you had The Exorcist right after it, and then this book by Thomas Tryon called The Other. There were New York Times bestsellers, and suddenly horror was the genre, and then the movies came out that became big cultural touchstones. And you just had this very lucky series of incidents where every few years something would pop. The paperback of Jaws got huge, and then the movie. You know, the Annabelle Horror book was 
huge, and then the movie. The Omen movie was huge, and then the novelizations. And so coming into the 80s, you were really surfing this wave from the 70s, and the 80s were all about blockbusters. And the three biggest blockbuster writers of horror in the 80s, Stephen King, B.C. Andrews, and Anne Rice. And they were everywhere. And so it really became this thing where the 80s created this boom, and then it, or the 70s created a boom, and the 80s it turned into a bubble. And then in the 90s, it, it popped, you know. Well, and, you know, and it's not just limited to horror books. I think back to when I was third or fourth grade, about every other boy in our class had a copy of Helter Skelter. And that was a real-life real horror story, I guess. But, you know, re- realistically, it was it, it's a lot of it is kids getting a hold of these books that they know they probably shouldn't be reading at that age, but nonetheless they are, right? Right, exactly. And, I mean, you know, one of the things that's interesting is when you ask people when they read their first Stephen King novel, they're usually 11 or 12. Like, people, kids like to read up. They like to read what the adults are reading, what teenagers are reading. They're, they're fascinated by the world, and they're pretty fearless readers. And, you know, the other thing, too, that I think helped with this is before VCRs, books and magazines were really the one form of sort of portable entertainment, right? Like, if you wanted to a horror movie, you had to look in the paper and see what was playing, and it wasn't up to you. But if you wanted to read a horror novel, you'd go to the library or go to the, the bookstore, go to the drugstore and see what was on the racks and grab stuff and keep it on your shelf or borrow it from your friends. So just things were a lot more accessible and portable in paperback and, and magazines before VCRs. Well, in this book, I just I really enjoyed it. I mean, I've, I've got these horror tropes in my mind as I'm reading them, and they all kind of came together for me in this. This novel is called The Final Girls Support Group. It's by Grady Hendrix. The book's available now everywhere. Go pick out a book and a little bit of nostalgia going through it and also extrapolating it to our world today. Grady, just a fantastic novel, and I thank you for joining me to talk about it. Thank you so much, man. I had a fun time. This has been Having Read That on KSCJ Radio. I'm Brian Vakalskis. Check out all of our episodes on our website, kscj.com, and subscribe to our iTunes podcasts. Thanks to music historian Molly Jolly and segment producer John Weasler. We will be back next time. This time, this is my